Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library with me, Chris Stanmore-Major. In this episode, we're concluding the book The Romantic Challenge by Sir Francis Chichester. This is the 23rd part of the reading, and we're on chapter 9. And if you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner to help support the podcast, or you can check out the Mariner podcast with all things sailing and seamanship each week, or of course, the Mariner YouTube channel, where you can see gear reviews, how-to videos, and me engaged in expeditions and projects all over the world. Now on with the story. Chapter 9 continued. It is all a little overpowering when I start working on the debris. I feel like an earthquaked peasant picking over the ruins of his cottage. This job needs a month to clean up. I simply cannot get into Sheila's cabin. It is one great dump of interlocked boxes, gear, all my clothes, two suitcases, one of which I can see open upside down while there is no sign of the other, stool, curtains, vacuum cleaner, newspapers, all hotchpotched in a cabin-filling heap three and a half feet high. And if I pull anything out, where can I put it? First, I must hunt for my navigation instruments. I took two sun sights and want to work out an accurate position. Perhaps this tin of anchovies, these saucers, bowls, cups and vacuum flask tops, won't mind if I move them off my chart table. There is a place to put them in the galley now. What oddities turn up when I opened my cutlery drawer in the galley, which is usually filled with many knives, about twenty forks, spoons, teaspoons and the rest, so that there is not a blank square inch in it, there was not a damn thing except one solitary fork. The drawer was closed. I needed one of the spoons and hunted round for a while, and finally ran them to earth in the adjoining cupboard in the dustpan and under some big scrubbing brushes, but many are missing. Where do these things get to? Friday the 7th of May, 1407. Run 113 miles. Sunfix 44 degrees 53 minutes north, 14 degrees 19 minutes west. Distance to Plymouth, 532 miles. Rig, mizzen and mainstaysail. 22.55. Just now I slipped with a saucepan half full of water and went a perler. Critics might assert it was due to this champagne cocktail I'm drinking. If so, I shall be having a worse fall after this second one. I fear, however, that this is going to be a rough night. Saturday the 8th of May, 0629. Out of my bunk after donning oilskin pants and sea boots. I have a technique now for putting on boots while in the bunk. I make use of the engine casing to push my foot against it. I had to get out to jibe because the heading had fallen off 120 degrees instead of 65 degrees. A horrible movement due to heading across the seas raised by the previous wind. I felt slightly seasick by the time I got back to my burrow, but a spoonful of honey fixed that. I've just had to go out again because the mizzen boom was wanging across with gear-breaking force due to the lumpy sea and gypsy moth being so close to sailing downwind. I thought the vang tail had worked loose, but it had not. The trouble is that the eye to which I usually downhaul the boom when running carried away with the stanchion which pulled down to the deck. Why worry? The sun is shining and Gypsy Moth is 140 miles nearer home than this time yesterday. 424 to Plymouth. Today, after some breakfast, I empty the bilges which are too full again. I still think that that may be due to blocked up water working through the limber holes and past the frames and stringers. Up forward, I think all the bilges are still full because of the limber holes being blocked. Last night I penetrated to the heads. It really is somewhat depressing. My razor, hairbrushes and all such accessories are gone. They may be in the bilge, but there is still too much black water there to see through. 
Even if I recover them, I don't fancy using them. I may not find the razor, in which case I shall have to turn up in Plymouth, looking like Rip Van Winkle escaped from jail. I spent quite a time mopping up and clearing limber holes to let the water find its way to the lowest part of the hull, where I could scoop it up. As a result, with fourteen and a half buckets full taken out, the hull is pretty clear of water. It would require a cloth to mop up most of the rest. This, of course, is wonderful, but when I look around, I want to shed a tear to see the boat that I had clean and tidy for Sheila and Giles to sail in with me. Now it is as if living on a rubbish dump. Total bucket tally, 362 and a half. That Saturday evening, I had a blessed nine-minute RT call to Sheila, and she told me not to come into Plymouth on the Monday or Tuesday because 50 foreign and British NATO warships were going in on Tuesday and recommended that I slow down and wait outside till Wednesday. That was certainly the easy way, but I hate being in a crowded sea area at night, alone, when I need sleep, and I now had only one navigation light. Gypsy Moth seemed to have picked up Sheila's message because she decided to put on a spurt to arrive ahead of the warships. At 0700, on Sunday the 9th of May, she had 285 miles to go and had averaged 158 miles per day for the past 16 hours, so she intended to arrive early on Tuesday. She was making 9.5 knots, fluctuating to 10.5 with no fuss or difficulty in a wind of south by west at 27.5 knots. The rig seemed to suit her very well, main staysail and mizzen with topsail. The topsail is setting beautifully, and it seems the mizzen staysail and big jib only spoil its effectiveness with the wind on the quarter. Later, I dropped the mizzen and then lowered the topsail about 10 foot down the mast, after which I changed down the wind vane. That seemed to work very well and may prove a good rig for running when one does not want to pole out. The pressure on the sails is further forward and I think it is much easier on the self-steering gear. Clearing up continued all the way to Plymouth. A lot of the work would have to await the attention of the boatyard. For example, the floorboards all had rounded edges where they had been battering each other in the cabin surf and a lot of fitting and painting would be needed. But I found my razor at last, in the bilge under the head's floor. My hairbrushes also turned up, thickly matted with filth and never usable again. The third and fourth drawers up in the fixed chest of drawers in the cabin were full of photographs, newspaper clippings and ship's papers, and such as my passport and Gypsy Moth's registration certificate, the radio licence, the visitor's book full of dresses and many unacknowledged telegrams and letters. All went under the water and were now mostly pulp. Perhaps those many people who helped me before and during the voyage and those who sent me letters and telegrams, all of whose names I faithfully recorded, will accept this account of Gypsy Moth Knockdown as my reason and my apology for not writing to thank them for their kindness. At 2200 hours on that Sunday, the 9th of May, Gypsy Moth was running into the channel nearly blind, with visibility down to a mile through light fog and no fix for 217 miles. It was not until 1625, the following day, that I got a sight of a hazy sun through the fog, this put Gypsy Moth on a position line which gave the distance off Plymouth, but no indication whether she was heading north or south of the Lizard. Gradually the direction-finding bearings of the Lizard changed from north-northeast to north by east, and although I was having trouble with the DF loop and reckoned it to be giving readings 20 degrees in error, this indicated that Gypsy Moth was moving to the south of the Lizard. Tuesday the 11th of May, 0300. I woke to stillness. I mean, no steamers around, and the lizard siren sounding a mournful, fear-inspiring, long and short, seemingly near. 
I found the heading had gone to 030 degrees, so got agitated in case Gypsy Moth had turned and made for the rocks as soon as I fell asleep. However, I reckoned the mournful moaning blasts came from the northwest, so that if I could keep going eastward, I should be all right. And I need not have worried about the silence, because now the air is again throbbing with steamer engine noise, and several are around Gypsy Moth. I actually saw some steamer lights for a few seconds, so the fog must have thinned, to hell with the fog, and calms, and especially the two together. Gypsy Moth has only done eight miles in the past three hours. I reckon she is at present right in the middle of the westbound steamer lane, and just a few miles southeast of the Lizard. Spending a night here, becalmed in fog, is not my ideal location for peace of mind. But with the dawn, the fog gradually lifted, and it was a fine, sunny, calm day with a light breeze. And all day, Gypsy Moth ghosted along at one and a half to two and a half knots. At noon, she had only 24 miles to go. The breeze strengthened, and as I passed Rame Head, it was too strong for the big wind vane, and I had to change it for a smaller one. I passed the great breakwater across Plymouth Sound at nightfall, and my beloveds Sheila and Giles came out to meet me in the flag officer's launch, lent to Terence Shaw by Admiral McCaig. Soon after midnight, we were all eating scrambled eggs in the Royal Western Yacht Club while I was telling my tale. Gypsy Moth was home again after sailing 18,581 miles in 20 weeks and four days elapsed time. I had spent five days in Bissau, 12 days in El Bluff, and seven days in Horta, so that the total sailing time was 120 days, which gave an average distance logged per day of 154.8 miles and per week of 1,083.9 miles. Chapter 10. Can it be done? Yes, and soon. The first single-handed craft to sail 4,000 miles point-to-point -point in 20 days could well be a multi-hull, which, if it can be kept from capsizing in rough weather, and if the single-hander avoids the mistakes I have recorded in this book, could do it easily. Absolute speed in sailing is going to be the important new field of effort to interest yachtsmen, especially single-handers. If I have made any records, I like to claim them, but I do believe that standards of speed must be established and properly recorded. Up to now, there have been a number of loose barside claims about speeds made under sail. The reader of this book will have noted what great differences occur between a day's run as logged, as measured fix to fix, and as made good towards the target according to calculation, and again, the difference between the total of, say, five days point-to-point -point runs compared with the straight-line calculated distance between the first and the last of the five days positions. For the record, I took 22.3 days over the 4,000-mile point-to-point run instead of the 20 days I aimed at, but this was 38% faster than my fastest 4,000-mile straight-line run in Gypsy Moth 4 in 1966-67. In addition, Gypsy Moth 5 made good 2,000 of the 4,000 miles in under 10 days. If the two runs of 1,017.75 in one five-day period and the 995.5 miles in an earlier one during the same voyage are added together, the 1,017.75 at an average of 203.55 miles per day was a lot faster than the best five-day straight run, which Gypsy Moth 4 made good in 1967, which was 884.75 miles at an average of 176.99 miles per day. On the way down from Plymouth to Bissau, Gypsy Moth sailed in two days, noon to noon, 431.6 miles, a distance point to point of 405 miles. 
Then there was a single day's run of 200 miles point to point on the way south to the equator and a three-day run of 601 miles or 200 miles per day on the way north from it. When a speed is claimed as a record, competition and development benefit. Rivals have a definite target to attack. They know the advantages that can be taken, the mistakes that can be avoided. What interests me is whether Gypsy Moth 5 could sail 4,000 miles in 20 days and what changes to boat or gear I would make before another attempt. First, the route. Undoubtedly, that 50 miles of Bissau estuary which had to be negotiated, followed by the day of ghosty winds until clear of the mainland, is a great handicap. Through greed or love of romance, depending on the viewpoint, I stuck to Bissau for a starting point. If I'd cut the distance from 4,000 to 3,780 and started from Dakar instead of Bissau, I reckon it would have put up the average speed considerably. But I love the idea of 4,000 miles in 20 days. It has such a splendid ring about it. And when it comes to a rival setting out to beat me over my own course, it will be nice for me in my deck chair to think of him starting with the challenge of that appalling yet truly romantic estuary drag. After that bad start, I cannot complain about the wind for the rest of the run, but it became clear that Gypsy Moth was not fast enough in winds under 25 knots. Could I speed her up for another attempt? If so, how? Gypsy Moth only clocked 9 knots on the speedometer for 295 miles out of the 4,000. Undoubtedly, this was under-registering about half a knot during the second 2,000 miles, and I think that she probably did altogether 600 miles of the 4,000 at 9 knots sailing speed, or 216 miles per day. With luck, the fix-to-fix -fix run for 216 miles per day logged would be 208. There is little margin. 19 days at that speed would only allow 152 miles reserve for a calm on the 20th day. To clock up 4,000 miles straight, Gypsy Moth had to be driven at between 8.6 and 9 knot sailing speed for 24 hours a day for 20 days. On thinking it over, I reckon I was lucky that she did clock up a total of 2,012 miles in two five-day runs out of 20 days sailed. So obviously, to have a chance another time, she must go faster. Could she have been speeded up? She was the right monohull for the job, but she was badly trimmed. To starboard, she had a 41-gallon water tank, say 435 pounds full, under Giles's berth, and a 41-gallon diesel fuel tank, say 380 pounds full, under the chart table. A total of some 815 pounds set as far outboard as possible to give greater cabin space. The main counterbalance was to be provided by the 26-gallon water tank at the forward end of the cabin, the baby Blake lavatory in the heads and the galley. But as I pointed out when I took delivery, the centres of gravity of the water tank, say 285 pounds full, and the baby Blake in the hand basin, say 50 pounds, are only about a foot to port of a midships, while the primer stove full can only weigh about 10 pounds. In addition to this, the Perkins 4017 diesel engine, 525 pounds, was after the mizzen, and the six batteries, say 420 pounds, were after the engine. The result of this was that Gypsy Moth had a heel of several degrees to starboard and was badly down by the stern. I tried to remedy this as best I could by careful stowage of my stores amidships and by, for example, stowing in the forepeak 120 litres of water in jerry cans, about 275 pounds, two anchors, 20 fathoms of chain, plus the sails and anything else Sid Mashford and I could think of. But there is a limit to what one can do in this respect and I reckon that the bad trim cost Gypsy Moth anything up to a quarter of a knot. 
On speedruns, I think one of the most important items is the self-steering gear. Time after time I had to take in sail because Gypsy Moth slewed up to windward or, with the runner-up, turned downwind. The sail which had to come in was nearly always the topsail because it made Gypsy Moth gripe up into the wind. I hated dropping that sail. It pulled like a shire horse, and as I write I have one on order, double the size for more speed, so the problem will only be greater. At first I thought this slewing was due solely to bad balance caused by the weight aloft, but on consideration I think that the self-steering needs more power. Great power is needed to check a 29-ton boat from slewing to starboard when the stern is slapped hard to port by a wave and the topsail sheet also pulls the stern to port while Gypsy Moth lays over to port in a 25-knot wind. The gunning gear was excellent. I was always admiring its performance and for Gypsy Moth I think it only needs the skeg and oar a foot longer and a modification to give it more scope in its lateral swing through the water and double the power. Few sail changes are needed. I should be arranging for the 450 medium-sized running sail, which I needed so badly when Gypsy Moth was sailing at full speed until the pole folded under the strain of the 640. The storm jib, which was torn into strips in the storm, has been redesigned, but this does not affect racing speed. There is not much to say about the broken gear, although I would have come closer to my 4,000-mile target if the poles had stood up, I doubt if I would have made up that 465-mile shortage on target in the 20 days. Nevertheless, gear must be strong enough for the job for which it is intended, and Robert Clark has specified new poles which should be 75% stronger. There is one problem which has me completely foxed at present, but somehow it must be solved. How can a yacht with a hull as fast as gypsy moths be slowed up in a storm? God spare me from another trouncing like I had in the North Atlantic. Streamed warps would be gone in 20 minutes with a fast yacht due to the snatching and a drogue would be snatched off in 10 minutes. I carry one for use at a mooring to keep the yacht tide road instead of wind road and I noted when lying at Mashford's mooring at Plymouth on return that it was hard to recover the drogue against only the tide. Spoilers, as on the underside of aircraft wings to spoil the airflow over the wings and cut down the speed for landings, are the ideal thing but to fit those to the curved hull of a yacht would be a hopeless proposition. I had an idea for slipping an inflatable rubber ring over the stern to work its way down to the keel before filling it with air to make a sort of horse collar. I think it would be a wonderful break, but what one can think up in an office chair and what one can do in a storm are two very different things. No one could succeed in this project without luck, and throughout this voyage I had the most amazing good luck. Consider those broken spinnaker poles, for instance. Fifteen foot of jagged edged metal boom attached to a full-bellied 600 square foot sail beating about like a mad balloon. Could be a lethal weapon and also could do great damage to deck and gear. Yet in no case did the broken halves actually part until I broke them apart myself. There were a number of falls I had, many of which could have been serious. There was that terrific bashing I had when I was thrown across the cockpit which could so easily have finished off my remaining kidney. What amazing good luck. Then there was the matter of my leg when I was thrown up against the roof of the cabin. Judging by the pain afterwards and the fact that I was knocked partially unconscious, I think it was lucky that the leg was not broken, which would have been awkward with the boat half full of water and the leak to be mended. Time after time it struck me how good my luck was. There was the landfall at Nicaragua, when it seemed again and again as if something were trying to drive Gypsy Moth ashore, and in each case I woke in time. 
Was all this luck or a capricious handout by Providence, or was it due to Gypsy Moth being blessed in a service aboard in the Bewley River by Tubby Clayton and Rector Bradley of St James's Piccadilly, our parish church? I do not know. If I am trying to carry this examination of luck into Gypsy Moth's own behaviour, I feel my brain will twist into knots. But finally, I would like to retract something I wrote in my book, Gypsy Moth Circles the World. Sailing up the Atlantic in May 1967, on passage towards Plymouth from Sydney, I said that after the Southern Ocean, it was like entering an enchanting lake. At that time it was, and most yachtsmen experience the North Atlantic at its best and mildest in summer. But as I discovered in Gypsy Moth 5, in midwinter, the deep depressions chase each other across from Newfoundland, south of Iceland, just as they do in the Southern Ocean. This is not the place to compare them in detail, but I think this quotation from Alan Villiers' excellent book, The War with Cape Horn, illustrates the power of the sea and exactly what I mean. The Marion Josiah, a 2,400-ton sailing ship, lost three men when coming up to Queenstown in winter 1906. A great sea pooped her, smashing the wheel, washed away the mate and two helmsmen. The mate and one helmsman went overboard, when the sea cleared the decks, it was found that the other helmsman had been washed along the deck and smashed almost to pulp against the forehead house. I was lucky to survive the storm which hit me in the North Atlantic, but as Captain Slocum, whose kindly spirit must surely sail with every single hander, said to himself, Let what will happen, happen. The voyage is now on record. Well, that's the end of the chapter and the end of The Romantic Challenge by Sir Francis Chichester. If you've enjoyed listening to this story and any of the others in the Mariner's Library, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner and there for $5 a month you can help support the podcast. Next episode will be starting a new book and until then, I hope wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you're safe and sound and I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers. Cheers.